Thanks so much to each person who's given leadership to this service already this morning. There's a number of people that you've seen on the screen, but I also want to say thank you to those that you don't see on the screen who provided leadership. You may not realize this, but in order for, uh, for the, the worship through music to happen this morning, somebody else had to record all the instrumental stuff and then get it over and, and add the video of the, the vocals. and There's a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff. You may not realize this, but most of what you're seeing on a Sunday morning is actually pre-recorded. The only thing that's happening live is what you see me doing, which means we've got people that have done recording during the week. We've got someone that's taken all those videos and put them together. Uh, and then we've also got the team that's here on Sunday morning and is actually making all of this happen. But I also want to say thank you to each one of our prayer warriors, to those that pray throughout the week for our morning services. For you are as much a leader in what happens on Sunday morning as those that are physically doing tasks. And so thank you for your prayers. It is my desire as the pastor that though we cannot gather physically together, that when we gather via the internet on our live stream, that we truly will be gathering to engage in worship, to give God glory for who he is, for what he's done, for what he is doing, and anticipating what he is going to do. I do want to mention at this time the picture for the uh, Pastors Club. Uh, thanks to everybody that submitted pictures last week. Got some great pictures of how kids show their moms that they love them. And so I want to say thank you to all those that submitted those. This week's picture is very similar. But instead of how do you show your mom love, the question for this morning is, how do you show Jesus that you love him? How do you tell Jesus that you love him? Think about that and draw a picture of that. Get your parents to send it to me and that will get you in the pastor's club. And I do look forward to the day when restrictions are lifted enough that we'll be able to gather together as a pastor's club and have that ice cream party. It is going to be a great time. Well, this morning as we look into God's word, I think it's so cool the way the Holy Spirit orchestrates a service. You know, with so much being pre-recorded, I could actually watch the whole service beforehand and plan my whole sermon around it, but I choose not to. I choose to treat this the same as it would be a regular Sunday morning service where people are preparing things, people are listening to God's Spirit, and we gather together, and we all together present the offerings that God has laid on our hearts to give in terms of music and leadings in Scripture readings and prayers and also in preaching. And it's cool to see the way that once again this morning, the songs that have been chosen, the things that have been prayed for in the prayers, and even the words of testimony that have been given, they really all fit in with the message this morning. Over the last few weeks, we've been tackling some tough questions, taking a look at the tough questions that we ask in the midst of tough times. And in order to help us in doing that, we've been looking at the book of Job and the story of Job. We've tackled questions like, uh, who's responsible for evil? We've tackled the question of, why God? And we've tackled the question of, what can I do in the midst of tough times? Well, this morning we're going to transition a little bit. And we're going to continue working through the book of Job, but we're actually going to start a walkthrough of the book of Job, starting at the beginning, going through to the end. This will take us a few weeks, to say the least. The book is 42 chapters long, and uh, we're not going to take 42 weeks to do it. I'll be lumping chapters together. 
But this morning, I want to invite us to reflect on the first two chapters of Job, the story of a man who lost absolutely everything. To do this, I'm going to read a few verses from Scripture. I'll also be paraphrasing some of the story. So I'd invite you, if you have your Bible handy, to grab it, turn to the book of Job, whether that be a printed copy or whether it be an electronic version that you're reading from. Job chapter 1. And I want to begin by reading the first few verses where we get a description of the main character of this book, Job. Job chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed gods in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. In these first few verses of the book of Job, we get a description of Job, the main character. And you know, when we're reading through Scripture, sometimes there's details that are included that we may scratch our head and go, what's the point of including that detail? Why do we need to know that? It starts out by saying where Job is from. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. Now, one thing to point out, this is not the place where the wizard lives and Dorothy clicks her heels and says, there's no place like home, there's no place like home. No, that's Oz, okay? This is Uz. Why does it include a detail like that? Well, because it gives us an indication that Job was not a Jew. The land of Uz would have been outside of the region where the Jews were living at that time, and so Even that little detail gives us a glimpse into this man. We see described, Job described many times throughout the book as we will read it through. We see him described as being a man who is blameless before God, who is honorable and upright and trusts in God. Well, isn't it interesting? If Job wasn't a Jew... This is not what he would have been brought up being taught about the one true God, the one who created all things, the one in whom we can trust. In fact, most likely he grew up with many different pagan gods all around him and many different belief systems. And yet here we have this foreigner, if you will, trusting in God. Interesting detail. We're told about his family. He had the children. We're also told about his livestock. Job was a farmer, quite a substantial farmer, I would say. If you look at those numbers of animals that he had, you know, we're talking thousands and thousands of animals that he had, and he had to have a whole whack of servants to care for all those animals as well. And it's important to know that detail when we take into account what happens next in the story. Job chapter 1 and chapter 2 go through a cycle twice. The cycle starts with a conversation that happens in heaven, where God starts out by making a statement, a declaration. 
One day, verse 6 of chapter 1, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. With that declaration, the cycle is started. God makes the declaration of who Job is and how faithful he is to God. The next step in the cycle is Satan responds. Satan responds actually with a challenge. He actually says to God, yeah, well, that's because you've blessed him with so much. And we know he's got a lot because we've already got the description of the size of his herds and his, his flocks. And interestingly enough, the statement at the end of verse 3, he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. And so Satan simply draws the conclusion, it's because you blessed him so much, that's why he's faithful to you, God. So God makes a statement. Satan responds. Then, Job res- then, sorry, then God responds to that and says, well, go ahead. If you want to take away what he's got, you go ahead. You have access to everything he's got. Just don't touch his life or his health. Then the cycle switches from being taking place in heaven to happening on earth. And we get the description of Satan beginning to work and the loss that Job experiences. Let's read together this passage. I know we've alluded to this a number of times over the last few weeks, but let's actually read this description. Verse 13 of chapter 1. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a message came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabians attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. That's a pretty significant loss. Like, we're told that he had like, you know, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys. That's, that's a lot of loss. And keep in mind, these are the animals that would have been his workforce. These are like, it's like losing all of his farm implements. And in one fell swoop, the enemy comes in, takes them all, and kills the servants. He probably cared for his servants. I mean, they, they were important people to him. They were the ones that were caring for all this livestock. They were the ones who carried out the work on his farm, so to speak. And they're gone in one fell swoop. But the story doesn't end there. While he was still speaking, verse 16, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. Now, I can just imagine what Job would have been doing at this point. He probably would have been thinking to himself, okay, so I know I've lost my donkeys, I've lost my, I've lost my, my oxen, now you're telling me I lost, wait a minute, wait a minute, my sheep? All, how many was it? 7,000 of them? They're all gone? You're telling me all of my sheep are gone? And he looks at the other servant and says, and you're telling me all of my donkeys are gone and all of my oxen are gone? And you guys are telling me that all of my workers 
They've all been killed too? That's quite a blow. But the story keeps going. Verse 17. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put your servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. Okay. So Job has now lost his entire livelihood. He has lost basically his entire farm. All of the animals that were listed, they're all gone, and his servants are all gone. That in and of itself would be a blow that would knock any of us to the ground, that would send us reeling, and we'd be going, how am I ever going to live through this? But the story keeps going. Verse 18, while he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house, it collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. Job lost everything. His children, his livelihood... At this point, he probably would have no longer been considered the greatest man among all the people of the East because he'd lost everything that made him great in the world's eyes. God makes a declaration. Satan responds and challenges that declaration. God responds and gives Satan permission to work. Satan brings about all this loss. Job goes through loss and then we see Job's response. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But the cycle doesn't end here because it goes around again. Chapter 2. God makes the same declaration to, to Satan at a different time. Satan responds by saying, yeah, well, you'll let me take all his stuff, but he's still got his health and he's still got his life. God says, fine, you can take his health, but you cannot touch his life. Satan responds and comes to earth and starts acting. Job experiences the loss of his health. Soars from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. So bad that by the time his friends show up at the end of chapter 2 to comfort him, they don't even recognize him. He is so sick. And yet once again, we see Job's response. And it's Job's response that I want us to consider this morning as we look at these first two chapters. This is the story of Job. This is the story that sets the foundation for the whole rest of the book as we're going to take a look at conversations that happen between Job and some of his friends that come to comfort him and ultimately a conversation that happens with God. But this is the loss that he experiences. But I want us to consider this morning his response. You know, there's a lot of different reasons why people might say the book of Job was written. Some might say it's written to teach us theology, to teach us about God. And we've learned some great theology already as we've grappled with tough questions and we've gone to the book of Job. Job. We've learned about God and we've learned about who he is and how he is the one who's in control. We've learned about all kinds of things that, that we've known about, that we know about God. We've learned a bit about theology of suffering and the reality that tough times will come as long as we live on this earth. 
But you know, I don't think the primary purpose of the book of Job being written is just to teach us about God and to teach us theology. Others have said that the book of Job was written as a book of encouragement. Now you might say to yourself, encouragement? What's encouraging about a story about a guy who has lost absolutely everything? Well, as one person recently told me, when I look at the book of Job, I realize it could always be worse. Have you noticed how we naturally tend to focus on that? You you know, think about it. If if we were having a conversation right now and there were a group of us together and and one of us were to say, oh man, I got this brutal paper cut on my finger. Oh, it hurts. It's, It's like the worst. What probably would happen? Somebody else would go, oh, I know exactly what you mean. I once had a paper cut on this finger and on this finger. Man, I couldn't pick anything up. It's awful. I know what you mean. To which somebody else might say, Oh, I know. I feel your pain. I haven't had the paper cut, but I once had a sliver that got infected. I couldn't use my hand at all. Oh, it's just awful. To which somebody else might say, Oh, guys, I know exactly what you mean. I once had a paper cut that I got a sliver inside. It got infected and it was so bad, they had to amputate my finger. You know, we tend to always try to one-up each other. And what we're trying to do is I think we're trying to point out, hey, be encouraged. It could always be worse. But you know, I don't think that's a healthy approach to take in life, in conversation, in friendship, or in studying God's word. Because the moment we try and do that, you know what we really are doing? We actually are putting the other person down. The one who first commented about the paper cut, we're saying, Oh, your, your loss is not that big a deal. This is a bigger deal. Oh, your loss isn't that big a deal. This is a bigger deal. We aren't called to one-up one another and to be the king of loss. No, we are called to walk with one another in the midst of loss. And so I don't think that is the main reason why the book of Job is written. Though you may find it encouraging to think it could always be worse. That's not the primary reason why it was written either. I think the primary reason why the book of Job is written is to give us a model of how to respond in tough times. Have you noticed that when tough times come, one of two things happen to your faith? Some people, when they go through challenging times, their faith is rocked. I have had many a heartbreaking conversation with individuals who have gone through tough times. They may be tough times in their work or at home or relationally or even within the church have experienced some kind of pain. And the conclusion they draw is, I don't even think God's at work anymore. Some even go so far as to say, I don't even think God exists. I don't think it's possible for a loving God to allow this. And their faith is rocked. Many are the heartbreaking conversations I've had with people who have walked away from God, walked away from the church, walked away from relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ because of the challenges they've had. There's another option as to what can happen when we go through tough times. And that's that our faith is actually reinforced. How did Job respond? 
When we look at Job's response in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, these are the words that we get. First of all, chapter 1. This is after all his animals are gone and all his servants have been killed. Verse 20. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Just stop there for a minute. Does that sound like a response that you've seen others having to difficult times around here? I got to say, I honestly have not seen it. That is not why my head is shaved, okay? And that's not, I've never seen somebody tearing their clothes because they're so upset. So what's up with this? Keep in mind, this is Eastern culture we're talking. Even today, if you watch newscasts of funeral processions in Eastern cultures, they are very open and vocal in expressing their grief and their emotions. They are wailing. They are crying out. They will tear their clothes. They will pull their hair. They're very open in sharing their emotions. The act of tearing the clothes and cutting the head, sometimes it was putting ash or dust on their head, was a very common thing. Now, we in the Western world, we're a little more reserved. Oh, sure, we may shed a tear, and yes, we, we will be sad, but we don't very often express our emotion that openly and that freely. Now, I don't think that this means that in order to have our faith being reinforced during a time of tough times, that we need to follow Job's model and that we need to tear our clothes and stuff. No, it doesn't really matter whether you're outwardly expressing it in in a public setting. But what we do learn from this is that, first of all, Job was completely honest. Have you ever talked to somebody that was going through tough times and you had no idea they were going through the tough time? And later on they come back to you and say, Why didn't you ask how I was doing? Why didn't you ask about this situation? And you say to them, I didn't even know you were going through that. Job was open and honest in letting others know that he was hurting. But then he does something else. Let's continue reading. Verse 20. Then he fell on the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Chapter 2, verse 9. Actually, you need to start at, um, no, sorry, verse 9. Job replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Now, you need to know the context of why Job's referring to his wife as being a foolish woman. Okay? This isn't part of his, you know, being, his, his faith being reinforced. This isn't something we should make a practice of doing. You know, husbands, not a good idea here. His wife had just made a statement to him. The statement was this. Verse 9. Uh... His wife said to him, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. You know what Job did in his responses? In both of them, he focused on what he knew to be true. Not the statement about his wife being the the foolish person. No, no, that that, that wasn't the the true statement that he was focusing on. That was just the language he chose to use. Um, 
question whether it was good language or not. Keep in mind there's cultural differences, there's language differences. Uh, probably in the English language, not a good idea. But what did he focus on? Chapter 1, verse 20. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will, be, I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Chapter 2. He acknowledged the fact that both the good and the bad come from God. You know, we've been taking a look at tough questions over the last few weeks. But sometimes we can focus so much on those tough questions that we probably will never get answers to until the day that we are with God in glory that that in and of itself is what draws us away from God. We become so focused on, on the questions of why is this happening? And this isn't fair. And this is not the way it should be. And why isn't this changing? And on and on and on. And we draw these questions and we focus so much on them that we are drawn away from the truth. But Job models for us that he focused on what he knew to be true. He focused on who God is. He focused on what God is doing. But he also did something else. It specifically tells us in the end of verse 20, then he fell to the ground in worship and made these statements. He ends verse 21 by saying, may the name of the Lord be praised. You know the incredible thing? Job worshipped God. Even though he had lost his entire livelihood, all of his livestock, all of his staff were gone, his children were gone, by the end of chapter 2, his health is gone. His relationship with his wife is just a little rocky, to say the least. He's lost his position of prestige in the community. We're told later on in the book that his, friend, his, his local friends don't even show up to comfort him until finally God gives him his money back. And yet, he worships God. What is worship? What does it mean to worship God? Does this mean that he had a, a great singing time and he, he grabbed his, his earbuds and he threw them in and he started listening to some praise and worship music and that's, that's what it was all about? No, I don't think so. First of all, they didn't have earbuds back then, okay? Like that's the obvious part. But worship is not necessarily music. When we gather on a Sunday morning or in this live stream, we have had opportunities to express worship through music, through prayer, through scripture reading, through silent reflection, and now through studying the Word. And these are all different ways that we express worship. But did you know that none of these in and of themselves are worship? What is worship? What does it mean that Job was doing? In John 14, we read that true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. Worship is something that happens inside us. Worship is an attitude of our heart that wells up within, within us that is that desire to praise God. And what do we praise Him for? We praise Him for who He is, for what He has done, what He is doing in the current circumstances, and in anticipation of what He is going to do. 
You'll probably hear me use that phrase a lot because that's the definition of worship that I have worked with for years and years and so it's just kind of ingrained in my head, just rolls off my tongue. But worship is the attitude of the heart from which we praise God for who he is, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he is going to do. How do we express worship? Well, singing is definitely one of the ways that we do, but so is praying. So is reading his word. So is quietly reflecting. In fact, the scriptures teach us that everything that we do can be an act of worship. We can seek to give God glory for who he is, what he's done, what he is doing, and what he is going to do, even when we are eating and drinking, the scriptures say, we can do it all for the glory of God. Job chose to focus on what he knew to be true, and in doing so, he praised God. He worshipped God. Now, we are given an indication of one of the tangible things that he did, where it says that he fell down before the Lord. Does this mean that the only way that you can worship God is to actually lay on the ground before him? No, that physical action was just another demonstration, a way in which he expressed that worship to God. You know, if we think of the songs that have been sung this morning, blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful. When the streams of abundance flow, blessed be your name. But you know, there's another verse in that song. Blessed be your name when I'm found in the desert place. When I walk through the wilderness. You know, we sing a number of songs, and I appreciate that, that many of the, the, the newer songs that are being written are focusing on this reality, that praising and worshiping God is not just something we do when everything's going good and we say, thanks God for this and thanks God for that, but worship is what we should be doing in the midst of the challenges as well. Job chose to worship God. And he expressed worship. His response, he was honest about the hurt he was going through. He focused on what he knew to be true. And he worshiped God. As a result, his faith wasn't rocked. His faith was reinforced. It enabled him, as we'll see as we go through the conversations. Now, one thing to, I should just mention God himself describes Job as being blameless. That does not mean he's perfect and sinless. Oh no, he made some mistakes. And even in the conversation that he has with his friends, he makes some statements about God and to God that God actually rebukes him for. But in this moment of time when he's experienced this loss, he does not deny God. He does not doubt God. Rather, he declares the truth. As an act of worship, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. As we continue through this time of challenges, no matter where we live in the world, we're at different stages of re responding to COVID-19. Some places are opening up, some aren't. Here in our province, the next step of opening up will take place again this next week. But the reality is it has impacted every one of us. 
But as I've said numerous times over the last few weeks, COVID-19 is not the only challenge that we are facing right now. But whatever challenge is weighing heavy on your heart right now, the question that I want to end with this morning is twofold. What do you know to be true? And what can you worship for? For that is the challenge that we are given. And that is what is modeled for us through the book of Job. What do you know to be true? And what can you worship God for? I want to invite us to take an opportunity to reflect on these questions. And uh, in just a moment, we're going to have another song that we're, we'll be able to sing along with if we wish to. But you might want to just quietly reflect on the lyrics of this song. As it's another song that talks about the truth and the reality that we, we experience. That God will never change. But this song lists a lot of circumstances which we may face, which may cause us to wonder about that sometimes. Whatever the challenge you are facing, I would invite you to use this time to focus on what you know to be true, the truths about God, and to worship Him. And if you're at a place where you're comfortable singing along with this song and singing it out as a song of praise, then do that. But if you want this time to be a time of reflection, feel free to do that as well. And so let's worship together as we worship the God who never will change.